Chapter 5 Arrested Development Our last several forays have been directed inward. We have gone into the woods, into the cave, into the caterpillar soup. Today we'll alter course a bit, pick up a shovel, and head downwards into the very skin of the earth, that miraculous, wafer-thin patina we call topsoil. But before I go spelunking into meaning and metaphor, let us tether ourselves to a couple of ground anchors in the form of data, two ratios to be precise. Their significance to our journey will become clear soon enough, but for now let's simply affix them firmly in our minds. One to one and one hundred to one. The dark woods and the fathomless ocean have come to represent the obscure and the unknown. Yet it is the life of the soil that is truly the most mysterious of ecologies. Human beings have been studying and classifying soils for at least two and a half millennia. And yet our understanding of soil and the complex universe it houses is comparatively less than that of the deepest trenches of the Pacific Ocean. What we do understand is this, that a thriving soil is the absolutely indispensable foundation and precondition for all terrestrial life. Without healthy soil, Earth literally becomes a desert. Our delving into the immensely complex field of soil science is perhaps as presumptuous as delving into string theory, and yet there is one dynamic within the soil that is illuminating enough to risk the presumption in the hopes of striking metaphorical gold. This brings us back to our ratios, our ground anchors, 1 to 1 and 100 to 1. These numbers refer to the relative amount of biomass of bacteria and fungi within the soil ecology. A soil with a 1 to 1 ratio has roughly equal amounts of the two, whereas a 100 to 1 ratio indicates a soil with 100 times as much fungal biomass as bacterial biomass. Some soils are even more skewed towards fungi and have ratios in the range of 1000 to 1. What we might ask accounts for the incredible range we see in these ratios, and why should we even care? My short answer to the first question, which I will expand upon, is metabolism. The answer to the second question has to do with our survival as a species. It is perilous to generalize an entire Linnaean kingdom of life, but one of the principal roles of bacteria within the complex web of soil biology is to break down organic material by ingesting it and therefore making it available once again for other life forms to incorporate into their bodies. Bacteria are, in a sense, recyclers and digesters. Fungi are digesters as well, but they serve many other functions within the food web that bacteria do not. Fungi are liaisons, merchants and barterers, and nature's great communicators and community builders. The mycelial networks of fungi connect. They connect plant to plant, tree to tree, tree to rock. Fungi are the Hermes of the natural world, Hermes the great go-between, the god of messengers and traders, of currency and flow, the guide between the worlds of the quick and the dead. Scientists are at the young end of understanding the multifaceted roles that fungi play within the ecosystem, yet it is already evident that without fungi, complex life as we know it simply does not exist. We return to the question, what accounts for the thousandfold difference in the ratio of bacteria 
in one soil versus another. To answer this, we must consider the conditions in which both fungi and bacteria thrive. Our answer here has relatively little to do with temperature and climate. Bacteria have had nearly 4 billion years on the planet to adapt to every conceivable ecological niche. Our answer has to do with accessibility of food source, which in turn has to do with both volume of that food source, but just as importantly with surface area. During their short lives, bacteria must reside where they dine. The more surface area available, the more diners that can be accommodated. The gardener tending their compost pile chops the veggies, shreds the cardboard and newsprint before putting them in the pile. Why is that? To free up more seats at the bacterial banquet and thus to accelerate the process of breakdown, to accelerate metabolism. Another way of saying all this is that bacteria thrive in disruption, which simply means to break apart. When things fall apart, there is lots of surface area, and when there is lots of surface area, bacteria reap the windfall. Now let's consider fungi. Fungi decidedly do not thrive on disruption. The gossamer hyphal strands of mycelia are threaded like a delicate lace throughout the soil. The severing of those strands is akin to a telephone wire being cut, a bridge collapsing, or a supply chain shutting down. In disrupted soils, plants and trees can no longer talk to one another. The minerals fungi extract from rocks can no longer be traded for sugars. The whole complex cooperative barter economy of nature is compromised. At this point, it should not be a surprising reveal that the one-to-one -one fungal to bacterial ratio exists primarily within agricultural soil. That is soil that is regularly tilled, or we might say disrupted, thus providing lots of surface area upon which bacteria can dine while simultaneously slicing and dicing the mycelial strands of fungi. Our 100 or even 1000 to 1 ratio represents a mature conifer forest soil, an example of what is called a climax ecosystem. Natural grasslands fall somewhere in between these two extremes, their soils being regularly though more gently disrupted by the heavy hooves of ruminant herds. With the advent of agriculture, and particularly with the advent of the plow, long before we had any scientific knowledge whatsoever of the microscopic life of the soil, human beings, in a sense, switched their allegiance from fungi to bacteria. Bacterially dominant soils, that is to say disrupted soils, are more productive in a narrow sense because they churn through decomposing material and make it available for plant life and subsequently human life at a faster rate than fungal soils. Bacterial soils have a higher metabolism, we might say. The exponential growth in the population of Homo sapiens since the agricultural revolution has four primary and interrelated drivers. The first, which is a relatively new phenomenon, has to do with increased life expectancy. The second involves the introduction of chemical fertilizers and pesticides of the so-called green revolution of the 20th century. The other two factors are much older and more fundamental. They deal, in essence, with surface area and the fungal to bacterial ratio of soils. Deforestation increases the surface area of disrupted land, which, as we have learned, lends itself to low fungal to bacterial ratios. Tillage increases the surface area of decomposing material, 
upon which bacteria resides and lowers the ratio even further. When Homo sapiens unknowingly threw their lot in with bacteria, however, we entered into a vicious cycle, the ramifications of which are only now becoming apparent. In the natural world, bacterial populations operate on a boom-bust cycle. When there is food, the population soars. When food runs out, the population collapses. Homo sapiens yoked themselves to agriculture and thus to bacteria, largely to avoid such boom-bust cycles. And yet steady or increased growth that derives from bacterially dominant soils requires an ever-increasing surface area, an ever-increasing metabolic rate, faster and faster churn. This may appear viable over a short period of time, but eventually the whole dynamic exhausts itself. Pushed to an unsustainable metabolic rate, soil burns through its reserves and collapses. If all this sounds vaguely familiar, it is because our entire economic system essentially functions like a bacterially dominant soil that necessitates ever more surface area, ever more disruption, and ever more churn. We build a network of roads through the Amazon, increasing the surface area made available for logging and agriculture. As the ice caps melt, oil and gas executives prepare themselves for the next feeding frenzy. The breaking up, the disruption of polar ice makes untapped deposits of undersea fossil fuels newly accessible. More subtly, however, our economy gets an energetic boost through societal breakdown as well. The smaller the unit of society, the greater the surface area, the greater the consumption, and the more GDP swells. An extended family of 10 living under one roof may have one television set, one stove, one computer, an apartment building with 100 single apartments will surely have 100 of each of these. What by one measure represents a breakdown of community, by another measure increases economic surface area by tenfold. But the party never lasts. The end result of accelerating the metabolism of soil is always exhaustion. An exhausted soil cannot hold together, cannot sustain life, and inevitably becomes a desert. There are two other points regarding soil I'd like to touch upon. The first pertains to climate change. Fungally dominant ecologies hold massively more carbon in the soil and in the biomass of plants than do disrupted soils. Carbon is the very stuff of life, and a mature ecology keeps it in reserve, held in complex stable molecules, the cellulose of a downed tree, or the hyphal strands of mycelia themselves. The disruptive churn of agriculture makes this carbon available for microorganisms to ingest, and when they die or simply respire, it is released into the atmosphere as carbon dioxide. A fungal soil is a prudent elder with a nest egg. A bacterial soil is a spend-happy teenager with a credit card. The second point has to do with what we might call a crisis of maturation. Bacterial soil favors opportunists and upstarts, short-lived species that are canny and adaptable. The plants found in disrupted soils tend to be annuals, that is to say plants that live for a season before broadcasting their seed in hopes of alighting upon the following year's disrupted space. There are very few elders in frequently disrupted soil, no stately groves of centuries-old oaks or millennial redwoods, Bacterial culture is startup culture. 
It is jostling and scrappy, with little use for historical precedent and sacred cows. In our accelerating culture, the term disruptive is increasingly worn like a badge of honor in the business world, and particularly the tech world. Disruption, which just means breakdown, has become a virtue. Perhaps it is no surprise then that a culture that so values and fetishizes disruption for disruption's sake so tragically undervalues the elders of its own species and the other than human world. For millennia, as we have cleared climax forests to make way for annual fields of agricultural crops, we have spent less and less time surrounded by mature ecosystems with other life forms that have something to teach us about resilience, endurance, community, growing old gracefully, riding out fire and storm and drought. An ecosystem kept in a near continual state of disruption, thereby thwarting its natural inclination towards greater diversification and ecological maturity, is essentially in a state of arrested development. Ecology and psychology are much more entangled than we tend to think, and so we must ask ourselves what the impact on our psychological growth as a species has been, given that we have increasingly surrounded ourselves with soils and landscapes that by disrupting, we have kept in a sort of perpetual adolescence. Do we not then become a product of the environment we engender, similarly arrested in our development? So where does this all leave us? We entered into what has long seemed a profitable partnership with bacteria 10,000 years ago, only to now recognize that in doing so, we inadvertently landed ourselves in a dynamic that is hell-bent on desertification or worse. The question is, can we, at least in part, renegotiate our alliances? Can we hitch our wagon to fungi and avoid calamity? If the question is simply whether this is possible, the short answer is yes. There are plenty of agricultural systems, both ancient and modern, that favor more fungally dominant soils, that draw upon perennial crops or mimic forest ecologies. Devastating loss of topsoil from intensive agriculture has prompted even many conventional farmers to adopt no-till or low-till techniques, effectively shifting the fungal to bacterial ratio of their soils. But I think the more interesting and perhaps more important question is, what would it mean to shift our worldview to one that is fungal as opposed to bacterial? What implications would this hold for economics, for political science, for the way in which we relate to the other than human world? The fungal worldview is, in essence, a mature ecological worldview. It is relational, densely and wondrously interconnected. The bacterial worldview has changed very little in four billion years and is comparatively short-sighted and tribal. It is perfectly illustrated by the corporation that lives or dies on its next quarterly earnings. Its prime motivation is growth, because if it is not booming, it is busting. I will beg the pardon of the soil ecologist and the Earth's legions of bacteria as I oversimplify once more for the sake of a final image. Bacteria are single-celled organisms, and as such they are confined to the surfaces, we might say the superficial. They live their lives in two dimensions. A whole other dimension opens up for the multicellular fungi. It sends feelers out every which way into its subterranean world in search of contact and connection. For our own shift to the ecological, 
an analogous gesture is wanted, a liberation from the confines of a narrow two-dimensional churn-or-die consciousness. Imagination is our third dimension. It allows us to cast our own mycelial threads into the broader ecology in search of relationship, in search of the wisdom of resilience in hard times, in search of the sense of belonging that is our precious and often forgotten birthright. In every life, in every ecology, disruption plays an important and essential role. By breaking down the old, disruption frees up energy and resources and creates a clearing for new growth and new possibility. Left to its own devices, the disturbed landscape is fleeting, however. It quickly stabilizes and proceeds down the path of ecological succession that culminates in a diverse, self-perpetuating climax ecology. To become wed to a cycle of disruption, however, is to become a perpetual rebel without a cause. We have boarded a runaway train that leads not to resilience, but to fragility and collapse. Can we leap off this train before it is too late? I certainly hope that we can, and I would like to imagine that there might even be a mycelial net to soften our fall.